Well, I'll be forever indebted to my eighth grade orthography teacher, Joyce Oberlander, for fueling in me a passion for the English language. Ever since that year of studying Latin roots, suffixes, and prefixes, I've uh, loved painting pictures with words, especially figures of speech. Most of you know that an oxymoron is a figure of speech that combines contradictory terms to form a paradox. Things like accurate estimate or an attentive husband or or boneless ribs, casual sex, congressional ethics, divided loyalty, fair tax, a green blackboard, act naturally, rap music, same... (laughs) (laughs) Same difference, Microsoft works, (laughs) or sweet sorrow, just to name a few. You get the point. Well, this morning in our continuing series, 40-Day Adventure, we're going to discover another paradox, that the real life that Jesus desires for us to have includes a freedom from self-centered living by becoming his servant. Now, I certainly hope that our adventure through Lent has been an opportunity for you to experience Jesus in in more personal and powerful ways, if you've been a part of us, uh, that your prayer life has been stretched as we've prayed for ourselves and our friends and our church family and community. I know that a number of you have, have experienced breakthroughs as you've strengthened your experience with fasting of some sort in order to more fully identify with the suffering Savior whose resurrection we celebrate next Sunday. And um, and then next week, it's kind of the final exclamation point on this 40-day adventure. And we'll, we'll celebrate and hopefully share a number of those breakthrough stories that many of us have experienced in this 40 days together. And, um, and it's to that end that, that we this 40 days is, is building. Let's pray together before we look to God's Word this morning. Lord, we're, we're grateful for how you've moved in our lives and... And, Lord, every day you, you are good and your goodness breaks in. Today, Lord, is it notwithstanding the beauty of this beautiful spring day where the, where the earth is coming alive again, a, a season of renewal, and it, it breathes hope and encouragement to those of us who uh, uh, like are observing. We thank you for the strength and health you give us to gather together today. And, Lord, we pray the prayer you taught us to pray. May your kingdom come. May your will be done right here on the earth even as it's already done in heaven. Pray that you'd put power on your word to our lives and that you would not only encourage us, but challenge us as well in your name. Amen. Over the last several weeks, we've come to more fully understand that the real life that Jesus wants us as his children to experience is one of freedom from the power and effects of our real spiritual enemy. Jesus framed his mission with these words in John 10.10, the thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy, but my purpose is to give you a rich and satisfying life. So he wants to declare over all of our lives these words, John 8.32, so if the Son sets you free, you are truly free. Our lives are to mark my freedom. And we've been discovering what that freedom is. Freedom from sin through his gift of forgiveness. Three, uh, freedom from sickness and disease through his gift of restoration and healing and wholeness. Freedom from 
the devil and his demons through the gift of deliverance, freedom from hopelessness through his gift of answered prayer. And last week we saw that God desires that we walk in freedom from worry and fear and anxiety as we trust him for daily provision. And today we're going to discover that we can be free from self-centered living as we step into being his servant. Now I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 16. If you have a Bible app on your phone, open it up as well. Or you can follow the text along on the screen. We're going to be reading a portion of Matthew's Gospel, the 16th chapter, beginning in verse 21. From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He'd be killed, but on the third day, he'd be raised from the dead. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? For the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of the Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. And I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So verses 21 to 23, I've, I kind of subtitle the filet of soul, S-O-L-E, open mouth, insert foot. Jesus' ministry is now beginning to take a significant shift at this point in the Gospels. He's now just one year away from the crucifixion, and Jesus begins to plainly declare to his followers that he's the Messiah, that he must go to Jerusalem to be killed uh, and suffer at the hands of the religious leaders and then rise from the dead on the third day. Consequently, uh, we'll see in the life of Christ that he begins to withdraw from public ministry and begins to focus more intently on the training of the twelve who just didn't get it yet. Now, Peter, don't you just love him? Uh, as impulsive and as outspoken as he is, just begins to blab. But it's kind of like how Peter is, okay? I identify, and maybe you do too, because oftentimes my tongue begins to engage before my brain kicks in. And that's what we see happening to Peter. Seriously? Rebuke Jesus? Correct the Lord? But that's what Peter was doing. But Jesus knew and loved Peter and could see past his his personal foibles and perhaps his insecurity and his manner of, of living. He saw through to the real source of the resistance. Remember, we, we've been seeing that, that the enemy resists uh, our lives, the work of the kingdom in our life, through temptation, through resistance, or outright oppression through demonic spirits. And, and Jesus could see that it was the devil oppressing Peter, and that Peter had like blinders on, as it were, and was seeing things from a human point of view. He was not observing the true work of the kingdom. Jesus could see into the realm of the Spirit 
at what God had already ordained. He was seeing things uh, that that God had intended, that the cross and the resurrection that would happen one year from this point were actually what God had foreordained from eternity. So he was seeing things from a heavenly perspective. Nothing was going to stop what God had ordained. And I'm grateful in a way that God's grace in our lives is kind of that way too, like it was for Peter, that even though we see things from an earthly perspective, we have blinders on, God nevertheless sees in, in, in our foibles and in our blabbing and our mindless sense that, 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 that there's things he's ordained to take place in our life and is merciful towards us like he was towards Peter. Thank goodness there's grace. Then verses 24 to 28 are what I've titled Filet of Soul, S-O-U-L, Become a Slave, Find Life. Now, from one perspective, the Gospels reveal that there are kind of like three stages of development in the life of a disciple of Christ. Multitudes were initially attracted to Jesus because they were hearing his words of life and seeing the miracles that he did. And, and we might call this, this group of people curious. But from among the curious, Jesus then calls people to follow him, to do his work, speak his words, and to, for people to actually trust him, put their faith in him. And we might call uh, that these people, uh, out of the curious crowd, become convinced. But then anticipating that the demands for true discipleship would be quite high, Jesus speaks to those who are convinced and asks them to take steps of commitment. So we have the curious, we have the convinced, and then the committed. And there are many people that are convinced at some level. You know, they believe the facts of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. They, they believe that historically he lived and died and rose again. They're, they're convinced that, um, that he formed the church and that generally he should be a part of the church and that we should obey because that's a good thing, you know, on the, on the course of things. But, you know, they're kind of th- thinking, well, you know, but let's not take this Christianity thing too, think too, too far. You know, like, like Peter thought, uh, hey, you know, you don't, you don't want to like get that serious. You don't want to like get serious enough to give your life. So Peter was convinced, but he just wasn't committed yet. You know, you, you, you don't want to get carried away. And it's with earshot of like the curious and the committed not wanting to take the next step, that Jesus invites them to commitment with those words. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. Now, Christians through the ages have been identified with many labels, um, believers, disciples, members of the church, the redeemed community. But I love the language of follower. It's a very simple, clear, and compelling way of describing our general call as a disciple of Jesus. And it speaks of action, because following is a verb. To many, Christianity is a set of doctrinal truths that they uh, agree to. Maybe they have kind of a, uh, you know, a set, well, I, I believe that. I, I'm a Christian. Uh, they, they, they subscribe to the list of things that Christians accept as truth, and they identify themselves as a Christian. They, uh, but, but, but this text seems to imply that following Jesus is something we actually must do. It, it implies action. To follow r- requires the constant active engagement in a dynamic relationship, doesn't it? We hear and obey. We hear and obey. As opposed to kind of a, a more passive, 
agreement or intellectual assent or a decision that we made in the disconnected past, a badge that we wear. I'm a Christian. Follower, as contrasted with that, implies something we actively are engaged in, hearing and obeying, hearing and obeying. So Jesus is inviting the convinced to make three commitments to action, to become committed. And the first, as you notice, he said, deny ourselves. Jesus said, you must turn from your selfish ways or your selfish ambition. Most translations of the Bible read, you must deny yourself. Now, denying ourselves is not saying no to a second movie on Netflix when you ought to go to bed or another piece of dessert after dinner. Now, self-denial may include those kinds of things, to be sure. But denying ourselves is something much deeper, much stronger, much more pervasive. The self that is to be denied, that we're invited to deny, is that stubborn, independent spirit in all of us that wants to live life on our own terms and for our own pleasure. None of us are strangers to self because we're all born with it, and it still resides large and strong in all of us. We want to do things our own way, don't we? We want to be our own boss. Perhaps we're familiar with the song, My Way, written by Paul Anka, made popular by Frank Sinatra. At least those in the audience my age or or older will recognize the song. I think it does a great job at capturing the biblical notion of the self. Let me read to you several stanzas. And now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case, of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway. And more, much more than this, I did it my way. Yeah, there were times, I'm sure you knew, when I bit off more than I could chew. But through it all, when there was doubt, I ate it up and spit it out. I faced it all, and I stood tall, and I did it my way. Well, there's a certain sense of bravado, isn't there, in our culture, when we do it our way. Thank you very much. In fact, the self-made woman or man who pulls her or himself up by the bootstraps is kind of heralded as a hero. We think, whoa, they're really important. But Jesus says that we are to deny ourselves, that we're to turn from our selfish ways, that we give up the right to do it our way that stubborn, independent way that wants to live life on its own terms and for its own pleasure. Jesus said, deny that part of you. We say no to self, to our dreams, our wishes, our plans, our path, our choices, our way of doing things. Because, see, at the, at really at the most basic level, we belong to God. He's the owner of everything on the earth, including you and I. The 24th Psalm begins with these powerful words, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all of its people belong to him. I like how Jeremiah the prophet framed this powerful truth when he said, I know, Lord, that our lives are not our own. Jeremiah 10, 23. A biblical picture that runs both through the Old and New Testament is that we are really called to be a lump of clay in God the potter's hands. We have no right to do things just as we wish. Let me illustrate. There there are a handful of times through the the last years that I've had my fill of being a pastor, and I thought, I'm just going to go do something else. 
I know you can't imagine that it would ever come to that, but there are times, few as they might be, where I've actually considered embarking on another career. Um, on one of these junctures several years ago, I was offered a position in a company that would have married both my love for the church and my love for designing and creating spaces in which the church can function and worship. The, uh, I was well qualified for, for the position. It was a great position, a great job, well paid. Uh, I was experiencing at the same moment a, a certain level of job dissatisfaction, which parenthetically is no reason to necessarily quit the job you've got by itself. But it can be part of the reason that God stirs you or propels you forward. But I try to live what I teach you to live, and so my wife and I recognized we belong to God. And so we took time to pray and ruminate and think and reflect, ask His perspective, gather the perspective of those that we love and trust. And as we did engaged in that process, waiting on, on God, we felt that we, if we were to totally deny ourselves, that we would stay right exactly where we were which is what we did, because our lives are not our own. I had to say no to the self in me that really wanted to bail out from where I was and go to that attractive offer. But because my life isn't my own, I say no to myself and say yes to God. And actually, many of you who have had similar experiences come to find there's a great deal of security in knowing that your life is not your own, that you belong to God. Now, secondly, Jesus invites us to make another commitment to action, and that's to take up our cross. Now, in Jesus' day, the cross was an instrument of death. It's where criminals were crucified on the cross in the most violent and painful and humiliating of deaths, often before a jeering crowd. So to take uh, up or carry the cross, literally, was to take the horizontal beam or member of the cross on your shoulders through the city to the place of execution. Such is the path that Jesus actually will take in one year from now, when he will carry the cross beam of his uh, cross through the town until he's relieved from that uh, oppressive job by the man named Simon. But in a more general sense, the cross is where Jesus' will was fully submitted to the will of the Father. It was the place where His will and God's will crossed. He fully surrendered. And when Jesus surrendered, the cross was where He went to die. To die to the expression of self-will, fully and completely. Now, in this sense, the cross is not taken up without a great deal of effort. Those of you familiar with the Passion story know that Jesus wrestled in agony with God the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane the evening before his trial and eventual crucifixion. He didn't want to go to the cross. In fact, he prayed three times, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering pass from me. Nevertheless, I want your will to be done not mine. So that perhaps is the quintessential prayer of denying ourselves and taking up the cross. Jesus didn't want to go there. 
Surrendering to the will of the Father was not a piece of cake for him. He said, God, if there's any way it's possible for me, I don't want to go there. Nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. And we know the rest of the story. But because he denied himself in the garden, he could fully surrender to the Father's will. And so to take up our cross and to surrender to the purposes of God for our lives is, is not necessarily easy, but it is possible to willingly embrace what God desires. Now, that might mean a certain career path. It might mean a certain school or a trade or vocation. It might mean a certain city, a certain country, embracing a certain calling in your life. It might even include something you don't necessarily want to do, living in a place you don't necessarily want to live in, or that you uh, doing a job you feel ill-equipped to actually do. It might include that. To take up our cross is never to suffer sin or sickness or oppression or hopelessness or worry, fear, and anxiety, because we've seen that's the things from which Jesus wants to set us free. But to take up our cross is to love or to forgive, or to serve, or to give, or to obey in a way that's going to require full surrender, just like Jesus was modeling. And it's not just a one-time decision, because in Luke's record of this same sermon, he adds the word daily, take up our cross daily. The writer of Hebrews encourages us with these words, that we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith, who because of the joy awaiting him endured the cross, suffering its shame. So we, like Jesus, can pick up our cross daily by anticipating the joy on the other side of full surrender. You see, after the cross, after the the, the saying no to our selfish ambition and seeing that thing die, when our will fully surrenders to God, then comes resurrection. That's where life comes. And so if you seek to hold on to your life, Jesus said, if you seek to do things your way, then you're going to lose your life. He said, if you seek to hold on to your life, you'll lose it. Now, you won't literally die in most cases, but you will miss out on the real life that Jesus has in store for you on the other side of surrender. The, the life that is full of deep joy and satisfaction in, in knowing God and that you're in the center of His will for your life. The, 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 the life of freedom that we enjoy in the kingdom. The life of victory and resurrection on the other side of the cross. And then Jesus concludes by inviting us as convinced disciples to make one more step of commitment into action, and that's to follow me. Now, in the original language, the the verb is in present tense, so it might read more accurately, keep on following me. To be a committed disciple, we must follow Jesus wherever he leads us. And to me, it implies that it's necessary to have a vibrant, personal, dynamic relationship of love and trust where we can hear and understand and follow and obey. Hear and understand, follow and obey. Real life is not a a one-time exchange where we believe the facts of the death and burial and resurrection of Christ and we receive forgiveness, more or less a, a legal transaction that cancels our debt and secures for us a home in heaven when we die. It's all of that, but oh, so much more. 
a life of continually following him, a life of freedom that as we deny ourselves and, and take up our cross and follow him, we'll begin to experience in a greater and fuller way freedom, freedom from sin, freedom from sickness, freedom from oppression, freedom from worry and fear and anxiety, freedom from self-centeredness that comes when we say yes. Now, our culture today has all the wrong parameters by which we measure success, doesn't it? You know, you look at the heroes who've made the cover of People magazine or Cosmopolitan or Sports Illustrated or TV Life, you know, and what what do we measure success by? Wealth and influence and visibility and success and position and possessions, those kinds of things. But Jesus said, what do you benefit if you gain the whole world and lose your soul or your life? We're to follow him to find real life. Where is Jesus leading you right now? As you follow him, if you're a committed disciple, just ask the question, where is he leading you? And where are you following him to go? Into, into what orbit of the three worlds in which you live? Your, the world of your, of your, uh, geography, where you live, the world of where you work, your vocation, and, and the world of your sphere of relationships that, that you influence. In, into what of those three worlds is, is he leading you to, to, to make a difference for the sake of his kingdom? Well, when we deny ourselves, when we take up the cross and we follow him, we tap into the freedom that comes from self-centered living. That's the joy of real life. Now, Jesus both taught and modeled the freedom that comes from living as a, as a servant. He taught the life of freedom that comes from being a servant or more literally slave as the word is translated, in Mark chapter 10, verses 43 to 45. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must become the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, the word servant comes from the Greek word doulos, which we would more literally translate today in bondage or slave. Slaves have no rights and expect no privileges. So Jesus was teaching the servant life. And then Jesus modeled the life of freedom that actually comes in being a slave. In John 13, verses 3 to 5, Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he'd come from God and would return to God. So with a sense of his authority and place and position, we read, So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. And then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. He left the seat of honor that night with all of heaven's authority behind him and assumed the role of the household slave whose duty it was to wash the feet of the guests that attended. What was he doing? Modeling the life of the servant. Now, I think it's interesting that the majority of the authors of the New Testament also saw themselves with this identity. Listen how they begin each of their letters. Romans 1.1, this letter is from Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.1, this letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Jesus Christ. James 1.1, this letter is from James, slave of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Second Peter 1.1, 1, 1. this letter is from Simon Peter, a slave and apostle 
of Jesus Christ. Jude 1. This letter is from Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ. Revelation 1.1. This is a revelation from Jesus Christ to his servant, John. Think they were trying to tell us something? I do. They all thought of themselves first and foremost as Jesus's slave. Someone who picked up the cross, denied themselves, and followed him. Well, what can we expect if we actually choose to respond to Jesus' invitation, commit to these three steps of action, and actually live this way? What might we expect? Quite simply, I think, freedom. Now, this is there's incredible freedom that comes in being Jesus' slave. And I know that this may seem like an oxymoron. It's a paradox, but it's really true, that we'll find true freedom when we become his slave. When we're free from self-centered living, we actually reach real life. We're slaves, but we're totally free. We're free from the pressure of trying to make all of our life work out the way we want. We're free from trying to to get all the circumstances to to work on our our behalf. We can let go of the worry and concern and anxiety and fear that we have, the preoccupation with trying to get everything in our life to work out right because we're his. We're his slave. And that's his responsibility. God's promise is that he's going to work all things together for good if we love him and are called according to his purpose. Now, he doesn't say all things are good, but he says he's going to work to make it all good. That's that's God's responsibility. Ours is to trust him and take our orders from him and live as Jesus' slave. Let's keep the division of labor in the right camp. God's job it's his responsibility to work all things together for good and set us free. Our job is to deny ourselves, take up the cross, and to follow him. And in that, there is great, great freedom. Following Jesus in this way gives us a sense of inner joy and peace and deep contentment. It's not a life of drudgery through sheer willpower and determination, gritting our teeth like, yeah, i got to obey God. Uh, you know, many of us have probably had moments of like uh, expressions like that in our life. It's not, a, it's not a life of just taking orders as if we're a robot. It's not a mindless, you know, coloring within the lines all the time. This is what disciples do. This is what Christians do. It's a matter of hearing and obeying, hearing and obeying, and then experiencing the joy and the peace and the, and the, uh, the great sense of satisfaction that comes in knowing that we're following Jesus where he wants us to lead. It's an active partnership. As we listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit, God's down payment in those of us who are his disciples signifying that everything he's promised in the book is going to come to pass. It's the down payment. The Holy Spirit is is the deposit that the, the full deal is really going to come someday. And I might just suggest for some of you who, who enjoy reading to read the biographies of some of the people through who church history have actually reported this sense of deep satisfaction in fully following God, um, Brother Lawrence, or George Washington Carver, Florence Nightingale, or or Abraham Lincoln, or uh, Hudson Taylor, or Mother Teresa, William Booth, the list is long. But when you read their biographies, you find out that they tap the secret of fully surrendering their lives to God. They responded to the three calls of commitment and and would report in their own in their own words that their life was deeply satisfying. Not always free from pain or difficulty by any means, but that it was deeply satisfying. 
Jesus, the master, promises to care for us as his slaves in three ways Jesus can be counted on to provide for us. He'll be the source of everything that we need. Jesus said, if you give up your life for my sake, you will find it. You surrender fully, you're going to find real life. You will save your life. Secondly, he promises to direct us. He will give us the direction we need for all of life's decisions. He promised in John 10, verse 27, My sheep listen to my voice, I know them, and they follow me. He's not going to keep you in the dark about the way way he wants you to go. To provide for us, to direct us, and thirdly, to protect us. We're not exempt from pain or difficulty or trials. Denying ourselves and picking up the cross is no exemption from a life that's difficult. It's not a Pollyannish, praise the Lord, everything's great. I mean, that's a plastic Christianity. We don't find that in the Bible. So it, we're dealing in the reality that at times the denial of self and picking up the cross is difficult. But it is to say that in the middle of that, he's, not, he's going to provide, uh, direct, and protect us. Jesus continues in John 10, 28. I give them eternal life, those that are called his sheep that listen to his voice and follow him. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me for my father's given them to me and he's more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the father's hand. So friends, Jesus is inviting us into a real life, a real life of freedom and especially one of freedom from self-centered living as we assume and take the place committed to the role of his servant. And I encourage you today to take a step towards Jesus in this way and just see if you don't experience the kind of love and joy and peace and satisfaction that he promises. I'd like to conclude today by praying the covenant prayer. It was first penned by the Puritan Richard Aline in the 17th century, made popular in the larger church by John Wesley. And... Um, if you can, you can uh, just join in in identifying as you listen closely to the words and, and adding your yes and amen with an exclamation point. Lord, I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Let me be full Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. In the covenant which I've made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. Lord, we do pray that you would take thoughts and intents of our heart in joining with this prayer and take our lives and that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit to live lives as a fully committed disciple, knowing, Lord, that you promise to, to protect and provide and, and uh, direct us. So we entrust our lives to your hands, expecting the joy and the peace and the love and the contentment of real life that you've promised to break in among us, our family, our church family, and even our community. 
And now, Lord, as we worship you, we pray that you take these tokens, the gifts that we give to you in the offering and the singing of songs, prayers set to music, you take these for what they are, tokens that that try to say in, in a simple way, we love you and we trust you in your name. Amen.